All right. Hello, everybody. Peter Sankoff here. Uh, very sad not to be a part of this pawn order. This is the first time I have missed uh, two episodes in a row. And I can tell you that um, I don't like missing two episodes in a row. Unfortunately, both episodes coincided with a lot of busy stuff going on in my life, including a family trip. And now, as you are listening to this great episode with Camille and a guest host, um, I am off in Zambia. I mentioned um, on an earlier podcast that I am coaching a moot team that uh, we won our national competition and that qualified us to fly off to Africa where at this very moment uh, well, I might be on safari uh, looking at some amazing wild animals but it gives me a chance to uh, get to Africa for the first time and hopefully uh, when I come back for the ne next episode of Pawn Order which I uh, most definitely will be on I'll have a chance to fill everybody in on what I did in Africa and hopefully um, if I'm lucky you know deal with some animal law issues that stemmed uh, came up on the trip because I'm going to get a chance to really look at how uh, some of the wildlife issues uh, are dealt with when we are on in Africa. So I'm very excited about that trip. Sad to be missing out on some uh, wonderful pawn order, but I wanted to um, at least chime in with this brief little message just to tell you all of our listeners that, uh, you know, I miss being there for you. And most importantly, it's a chance for me just to thank everybody um, for the incredible contributions that you're making to our Patreon page. Um, I could not be more excited about the Patreon page because I think it's going to allow us to do some even better things for pawn order and I have a lot of ideas and I know Camille does as well and we are just both super excited that our listeners um, are, enjoy the show enough and feel that we give you uh, enough good stuff that you want to support us financially and I can't tell you how much that means to me um, doing pawn order is a labor of love I've, I've, I've really wanted to do it with Camille for many years and just to get the chance to uh, speak to you all about these animal law issues and sort of um, use our time to explain them it's not easy for me to carve that time out of the schedule, but I can tell you that um, when we get support from our listeners, like we did on the Patreon page, it makes me want to do uh, that much more. And I can tell you that uh, I'm already thinking of some different subjects and different topics that Camille and I will get to talk about in future. And I couldn't be more excited about coming back to the next episode of Pawn Order, um, because I promise you I will be there after two episodes off, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you all again. So I'll leave it to Camille to take care of the rest of this episode and uh, wishing you the best from Africa. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to episode 30 of the Paw and Order podcast. It's Camille and Peter. Guess what? Again, he's away this episode. He's still in Zambia with his law students, um, coaching them as they go through a pretty cool moot competition. Uh, but I'm actually joined by a co-host this week who I'm really excited about. We've got animal law lawyer Rebecca Breder on the podcast. Welcome, Rebecca. 
Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's so good to have you. I've been wanting to have you since we started the podcast, so I'm really glad it's finally happening. Uh, for anyone listening who doesn't already know about Rebecca, because she's quite well known in the animal law field, she has her own practice in Vancouver, Breder Law. Uh, she practiced civil litigation at a leading Vancouver firm for about a decade before she struck it out on her own and now does exclusively animal cases. So we're going to talk a bit more about Rebecca's background as well as some of her major ongoing cases when we get to the main segment. Uh, but for now, I want to start off by thanking everyone for their incredibly kind support for our brand new Patreon page. Uh, the first round of supporters that signed up, you guys are total rock stars. A shout out to Andrea, Katie, Kristen, Lara, Liz, Mariana, Michael, Michelle, Zach and Juanita. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring the podcast. It takes a lot of time and effort and actually money too to put out Paw in Order and we really love doing it. So all of you folks who signed up have uh, gone a long way toward helping us make sure we can cover the costs of editing the show and hopefully paying a research assistant in the future so that we can bring you an even better program. If you haven't checked it out already, check out patreon.com slash pawinorder. You can sign up to support the podcast for as little as just a dollar a month, and perks range from handwritten thank you notes, name mentions on the podcast, shoutouts on social media, even the chance to dedicate a special podcast episode to a human or an animal, and maybe appearing on the show yourself. And of course, you'll get our utmost gratitude and appreciation. So please check out patreon.com slash pawinorder and consider becoming a sponsor. If I could jump in here, because I just, I want to echo that because coming from the animal law community as a professional, I think having this podcast is so important because not only does it help people in general understand animal law issues, those who aren't necessarily lawyers, but for lawyers themselves too. I think we, we always learn something. It's interesting. It's engaging. And I couldn't agree with you more, Camille. I really hope that people sign on. Oh, thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca. And thanks to everyone who's signed up so far. You guys are the ones who make it possible for everyone else to listen. So we really appreciate your support. Uh, okay, so Rebecca, have you been following the whole business at uh, in, in Parliament with Bill S203 to ban whale and dolphin captivity? Oh, yes. Yes. And I'm, I'm just so pleased. I know it must have been, especially for you, because you were there watching it firsthand. And it must have been such a roller coaster ride up and down. And to just a spoiler alert for those who don't know it, at least now it's hopefully just so close to becoming actual law. Yeah, we are getting so, so close. So just to update on ev uh, everyone on what has just happened, we had some like majorly dramatic moments with this bill over the last <laughs> the last two weeks. So of course, the long background to this bill is that it's been delayed at every opportunity in the Senate by conservative senators, finally got out of the Senate, sponsored in the House of Commons by Green Party leader Elizabeth May. It was going to the Fisheries Committee for study, but... Everyone was sort of on the same page, it seemed, that this was going to just be a pretty quick process because uh, the, the clock is ticking on this bill. And if the Fisheries Committee were to make any amendments to it whatsoever at this very late stage, it would have effectively killed the legislation. Because Rebecca, as you and I sort of know being lawyers and other politicals might appreciate, uh, we've got a, a, an election coming up this fall. And when Parliament stops sitting in June before the election, any legislation that doesn't get passed by then, it's dead. 
dead. It's done. Oh, yeah, completely dead. And it just, what I just don't get, and maybe you were there and, and maybe you could fill us in a bit more, is why these amendments so last minute? Because it seemed like things were going pretty smoothly um, shortly before like that last that last appearance. And then all of a sudden news about these possible amendments. Yeah. And luckily they were all struck and 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 it passed without amendments but it's it just unbelievable how i mean i guess i guess it really comes down to that there is a lot of politics behind it there is a lot of money behind it and those who really didn't want to see this legislation come to be are doing everything they possibly can reaching out to the politicians who they think they have a connection with to try and stop this legislation from passing but I think time has come and it's so clear that the majority, the vast majority of Canadians and dare I say people around the world have had enough with seeing these beautiful, sentient, intelligent, social creatures being confined to tanks. And they want to see legislative change and they want to see law reflect actual current societal values. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. There's so much public support for Bill S203. And not just Canada, you're right, it's it's a global phenomenon that people are taking these issues seriously. But of course, Marineland, Vancouver Aquarium, the only two places that still keep cetaceans in tanks, we're fighting mm -hmm. it hard. So I think that some of the amendments were definitely motivated by their wishes. Mm -hmm. And we started to get really freaked out because the advocacy community started hearing that the amendments, some of them were likely to pass. It's, it's a liberal dominated committee and it sounded like the liberals wanted to support some of the amendments, not actually the mm -hmm. ones that would have gutted the bill that were proposed by the aquarium or marine land. But no yeah. matter what the amendments were, even if they were minor technical ones, it would have delayed the bill enough to kill it before the election. So Right, and that was a danger probably, I think. Like that was probably the biggest risk is any delay just so time sensitive at this point that any delay, regardless of motivation, I guess, um, would, would kill it. Exactly. Even well-intentioned amendments to this mm -hmm. bill would have meant a death sentence for it. Uh, and the reason right. for that is that if it's amended, of course, it has to go back to the Senate again before it becomes okay. law where anti- whale senators mm -hmm. would have the opportunity to effectively delay and kill it again. So right. this massive mobilization campaign began over the weekend before the, the fisheries committee's meeting where they would be voting on it. And I have to say, Rebecca, I've never seen anything quite like it. We know that at least 20,000 emails and phone calls were made to politicians in the yeah. course of about 48 hours. That is unbelievable. And I have to say, I mean, I left a, a voice. Well, I tried calling and then ended up leaving a voice message for the chair of the fisheries committee. And, and I couldn't get through. And when I, when I got the voice message, I was thinking, hmm, well, I hope this is a good sign. Yeah. And, and I've heard from others who try to contact the committee, too, and, and they had a similar experience. So I think we could only assume that, uh, and I think we're right, that they were just inundated with people telling them, to please just do your job and uh, take this to the next step and make this into a law. Yeah, that's exactly right. They definitely felt the pressure. They definitely felt the heat. The environment minister's office, the fisheries minister's office, they, they were feeling it too. And the, the scary thing is, Rebecca, we walked into that meeting, the fisheries committee meeting on um, 
the Tuesday, uh, still not Mm -hmm. knowing what the result was going to be. We were being told by people who sort of knew these things that even minutes before the meeting that uh, it wasn't going to work and that they were going to pass the amendments. But then something just, yeah, so we all walk in there feeling like we're going to a funeral. And then suddenly there started to be this energy in the room. And it seemed like the liberals were, were huddling and discussing something. And the meeting began, the amendments started getting debated and voted on, and the liberals voted down all of the Marineland Vancouver Aquarium amendments, and then they withdrew their own. So it passed without any amendments, and it was just the most amazing moment in perhaps my life. <laughs> oh, and it, like seriously, it must have felt like the most insane roller coaster ride. In oh. those moments. Yeah, no, it really was. We were we were all so sad that day, thinking that all these years of work wouldn't pay off for the whales. And then at the end of the meeting, it was a, a massive celebration. There's there's actually a film crew from the, the Nature of Things making a documentary about this bill and the process and the issue. So they Ooh, were there cool. in the room. They captured the whole meeting, and we debriefed with them after. And... Yeah, oh. so now we're getting pretty close. Like uh, like you said off the bat, we're, we're in the final stages. There just needs to be third reading debate and vote, which the cards are lining up so that it should happen before it's too late. We just have to keep the pressure on politicians. Right, and I think that's because uh, they break in June, I think. That's right, right. For, that's for, right. For the summer session? Yeah, June. Or I mean, for, for summer break? Yeah, June 21st is set to be the last day right now. So okay. Elizabeth May's so office, I know. Is, <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. I know Elizabeth May's office is working overtime to, to make sure this is going to happen. So if you're listening and you want to make a difference, just make sure you contact your MP, let them know that this matters. I, I think they know that by now, but there's no harm in telling them again. <laughs> Oh, I completely agree. There's absolutely, I'm a strong proponent. There's absolutely no harm in emailing, calling, or leaving a message, writing, you know, anything, as long as there's some contact made. If people- and, and it just, it's so true. Like when we say that, oh, well, it's just one person and I'm not going to make much of a difference. And I so don't believe that at all. And it really takes, it takes no time. And there's really no excuse nowadays with Google at everyone's fingertips. You could find uh, everyone's the MPs or MLAs if it's a provincial issue, um, their their contact information. Just like literally five minutes. Yeah, exactly. It's so easy and it works. We saw a huge victory, and that was only thanks to all the advocacy by everyone who took action. Without all of you, this bill would have been dead by now. So this this is the part, Rebecca, where if Peter was here, he would start making fun of me because I'm on my hobby <laughs> horse, which is political lobbying, and you've climbed on it too, which is great. So thanks. <laughs> I'm sure Shannon will insert the hobby horse uh, sound. <laughs> but it's so true. I know I could just I could kind of see Peter, uh, Peter's eyes kind of like eye, eye rolling. And, um, <laughs> like, OK, all right. All right. But OK, so um, so what's this with the vegan fashion show? Oh, yeah. OK, so this is this is kind of. I don't know. I feel sort of embarrassed by it. Um, I'm going to be in a vegan fashion show this weekend. <laughs> yeah, that, like Toronto. you're actually walking? Yes. You're walking it? I'm making Ooh. my runway debut. I'm sure I'm going to be totally awkward because I've got no idea how to pose, but it's it's a charity <laughs> fundraiser. It's at the, That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a charity fundraiser for Wishing Well Sanctuary, which uh, people in Toronto might know of them. They're, they're just outside the city, but an hour north in East Bradford. And just a beautiful place with many beautiful animals. I love to do anything possible to support them. And the lovely people at the Right Side Boutique are putting on this fashion show. It's at Danforth and Woodbine. It's going Mm -hmm. to be Sunday, April 14th, 
2.30 p.m. You can get tickets by visiting the Right Side Boutique's website. Uh, we'll post a link in the show notes. So if you want to come watch me awkwardly model, now is your chance. <laughs> So Sunday, April 14th at 2.30 p.m. That's right. That's right. So if you're listening to this a bit later, you may have missed the date, but maybe you can find some pictures on Instagram. Yeah, that's awesome. Good for you. Oh, I'm sure it, there'll be moments of sheer awkwardness and moments of, um, of just having a great time. It's all for the animals, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what we tell ourselves, the funny things that we end up doing. Yeah. So, that's awesome. So the other thing I've been up to these days is going through all of the amazing submissions for the Animal Law Conference coming up October 4th to 6th in Halifax at uh, the Schulich School of Law. And happy, Rebecca, that you've put together a panel proposal on litigating dangerous dog cases. Yes, yes. And, uh, well, I have to say I was a bit of a nerd and I, I, I think I submitted two, uh, two, other, <laughs> two other ones in addition to uh, the... Oh, yeah, you're uh, right. I forgot. Dangerous <laughs> dog ones. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm a bit, uh, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to that because um, clearly I love talking. But uh, I think this will be an awesome, awesome conference. Um, It'll be the first time that we're pulling together uh, people from all across Canada. And um, and it should be good because I think it, it sounds like a mixture of, yeah, of uh, private practice, kind of practical things, theory, anyone who's interested in animal law issues, um, not just lawyers, but I, I think the general public would probably be really interested to hear about some of these sessions too. Yeah, for sure. And I've got to say the quality of these submissions and the number of people who've applied is just breathtaking and I'm totally blown away. So cannot wait. Um, yeah. And I think that speaks to where we are with animal law in Canada, because if this happened, you know, even just several years ago, I don't think you'd probably get as many submissions as you did now. No, I totally agree. We now have amazing scholars all over the place. We've got great people at NGOs doing this work and private practice. It's it's a really growing, impressive field. So mm -hmm. it should be fun. Well, yes. And that's in October, right? That's right. That's right. October 4th to 6th. We'll post a link in the show notes as usual, and we're going to be opening registration and releasing the agenda sometime in the next couple of months. So stay tuned for updates. Woohoo! Looking forward to it. Ah, all right. And now we've got an announcement from our amazing sponsor, The Grinning Goat. The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique. They have an incredible selection of footwear. And funny enough, Rebecca, that you're on today, because we can talk about the fact, I think Peter and I have mentioned many times before that the Grinning Goat has kindly named a line of their footwear after animal justice um, members and advisors, including Rebecca. So there's a pair of Rebecca boots. <laughs> Which I absolutely love. Did you buy I them? I have to say, I did. I did. I couldn't. And you know what? I have to, I mean, I, I love them. And, um, and really I wouldn't have heard the end of it from my mom, the kind of Jewish guilt if, if I didn't buy them. And I think, uh -huh. um, but there's so, there's so many other products on, on that, um, in the store, which I haven't visited, uh, it physically, but online, oh my gosh, so many things. I bought a couple of things already and it's so 
hard to limit myself to like just not buy everything I see. Yeah, their selection truly is amazing. So if you're looking for new spring or summer shoes, assuming that your region doesn't have snow, which mine currently does in Ottawa, but hopefully you're facing better weather, you can visit grittinggoat.ca and with the code PAW15, you'll get 15% off your order and they ship nationwide. Yes, and I, I strongly encourage everyone. And it's it's not just boots; they have shoes. They they have all sorts of vegan vegan clothing and different vegan options. I just just go to their website; they're awesome. Tons of great stuff. Okay, Rebecca, let's move on to the in the news segment, and we've got a few articles to discuss today. The first one is a piece in the Globe and Mail by everyone's favorite writer, Jessica Scott Reed, <laughs> about how activists, animal rights activists, have started trespassing on farms to get footage of what occurs. And the reason they're doing this is because the industry is policing itself. And this is an issue that's mm-hmm. been coming up recently over the course of this winter. The, 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 the awareness that's growing over the fact that when it comes to the farming industry, it essentially is the fox guarding the hen house. They've mostly set their own rules. There's uh, very little inspection that would ever occur for any sort of animal welfare reason because there's not really any standards to inspect for. And uh, Jessica has tracked the rise of uh, a few activists recently, especially in Ontario, going off onto these farms to evaluate the claims that these farmers make in public. They say everything is great. We really care for our animals. But, you know, recently some activists in outside Toronto found uh, one dead calf on a farm and another one that was dying and covered with sawdust and a lot of other uh, disturbing things. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see this new strategy emerge. And I have to say that um, I just can't believe when I get comments about how, well, these activists are trespassing onto private property. They shouldn't be doing that. Would you let someone or how would you like it if someone trespassed into your home? You wouldn't like it, right? So in the same way, we shouldn't be letting uh, activists or advocates trespass onto farms. But I'm sorry, you can't compare a burglar coming into your home with someone who's trying to help animals and without these amazing, brave activists who are really trying to shed light on what is really happening on maybe not all farms, I think it would be unfair to say all farms, but the vast majority of them, um, it's thanks to these activists that and undercover operations that we really get to see what goes on on a daily basis. And now I could see, like, I could just hear it that from the dairy farmers and just farmers in general oh well no we really care about our animals and we love them and in order for us to have a good product we have to treat our animals well and we don't need anyone coming onto our private properties to um to to say otherwise well you know the bottom line is if 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 farmers and those who use animals to sell their products if they have nothing to hide why is it such a problem for for them to have activists uh, record what goes on on their properties? And I acknowledge it is their properties, but it's really thanks to, again, these activists advocates who go on to that we get a real good look at what happens. Because there's no point in giving them advance notice and saying, hey, you know what, um, like if the CFIA wants to inspect the farms and give and it gives them advance notice that they'll be on, of course they're going to make sure that 
everything is clean, that the animals are, they're going to remove animals that are clearly not looking good. You know, the, the way we know the truth is by coming onto properties unannounced. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's actually very inspiring that some people are, are willing to risk a trespassing ticket or potential other legal sanctions to bring the truth to the public about what goes on on Canadian farms. So hats off to these activists. And I'm glad that the Globe and Mail published this piece. It's uh, it's important for, for people to be aware of the situation and think more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so our second story today is is some really good news. And Perhaps not surprising given some other developments across the country that we've seen lately, but New Brunswick veterinarians have just voted, Rebecca, to ban cat declawing at their latest meeting. I know. Amazing, because now they join the ranks of Nova Scotia and British Columbia and Alberta. And I think, I I don't know, actually, PEI? Yeah, PEI too. PEI? Yeah. And Newfoundland. Newfoundland and Labrador. And yes. I think also Saskatchewan. Honestly, it's getting, oh, and Alberta. And it's getting to be so many that it's actually, uh, I think we've just really got Ontario and Quebec. But Montreal SPCA has launched a campaign to get Quebec vets to do it. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw national legislation about this issue sometime soon, perhaps about cat declawing and maybe other mutilations like ear cropping and tail docking. Yeah, it just seems like a no-brainer. It really does. You know, if you don't want your cat to scratch your couch, then maybe trim your cat's nails a little bit more often. Um, there, take out some or buy some scratch posts. Uh, there's some sense, you know. I've and don't get me wrong. I mean, we always have had cats, and we currently have three rescue cats in our home, and two of them love scratching. And the way that we manage this is um, is by putting some scent. We found that um, there's there's certain scents that they don't like. That said, you have to be careful that it's not actually, even um, these these so-called natural products can be poisonous. So you have to make sure that you talk to your vet and whatever you want to use is not going to have a, 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 essentially poison your pet. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's much better than actually removing one of their joints at the knuckle. <laughs> Exactly, because that's what it is. It's it's not just removing their nails; it's removing uh, their fur, their nails, and their first knuckle, which yeah. is extremely painful, excruciating, and, and for a very long time, behavior problems down the road in many many cases. So, this is really good news. Uh, it's I think more evidence that societal values are shifting, and that decision makers like veterinary boards or individuals with authority are starting to respond. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And to end with our final story today, uh, this is a more, more of a sad story, but it, it's a piece out of New Brunswick uh, near St. John. Oh, the guinea pig one. Yeah. The guinea pig one. Yeah. Really sad story about guinea pigs who were allegedly, quote, unquote, inhumanely euthanized at a zoo, Cherry Brook Zoo near St. John, New Brunswick. And the story is a little de- uh, sketchy on the details. They're pretty scarce. The New Brunswick SPCA put out a statement that they'd started an investigation into some sort of incident of inhumane euthanasia of guinea pigs. And they recommended after their investigation and gathering evidence that the Crown uh, prosecute, but the Crown has decided that it won't be prosecuting. And it's it, this, this is a kind of story where it's it's difficult to really dis- discuss it in the absence of too many details, but there's a few structural issues here that concern me. And one is the lack of accountability uh, by Crown prosecutors in not explaining why there are no, pe- no, no charges laid against the zoo. 
Yes, exactly. And and I really, I mean, I, I really don't know at all why the Crown didn't proceed. Um, I, I can only speculate that it's because it involves guinea pigs. You know, if this involved some bigger, um, quote, pewter animal, maybe they would have taken it more seriously. But I, I agree, short of any details, uh, and we really don't know um, the details of what went on, and, and short of having them, it's really hard to know why they didn't proceed. But either way, it's never, I'd like to just say that just because there's alleged cruelty involving guinea pigs doesn't make it any less serious than alleged cruelty involving a horse or a cat or a dog. No, they, or any other animal for that matter. Completely. They all suffer in the same way. And we, we sort of have a hint of what might be going on here by a statement that the zoo put out. They discuss uh, a feeding program and they, they put out a statement mm-hmm. claiming that they adhere to uh, Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums guidelines for animals used for feeding and that they're euthanized. Which, sorry, which we all know that that's... It, uh, the fox guarding the hen house. Yep, literally. Yeah, Kaza, yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. um, afraid to say, is a complete joke. The structure is uh, a bunch of zoo industry people getting together and setting their own rules, much in the same way that the farming industry does or the laboratory industry does. It's pretty common across animal uh, fields, fields of animal use. But yeah, so it's disturbing yeah. to me, Rebecca, that they put out the statement and they're saying that they adhere to all these standards that are that are not laws and that potential, you know, potential legal violations aren't being prosecuted. And again, we don't know what happened here, but I would just like a little transparency. Oh, I completely agree. And again, if there's really if they take no issue with what happened, then why not disclose further details and why not just be completely open? Yeah. Instead of just having some generic sentences and comments um, put out by, well, I don't know if, it, if in this particular case, if it was put out by like a PR specialist, but it just clearly, it was just such a generic statement about how they follow the rules and the guidelines and um, they're not doing anything illegal, but okay. So then just show us, tell us a little bit more about what happened. Yeah, yeah. Let's try some transparency. Well, there's if you're annoyed about this and you're upset and you're listening, unfortunately, there's probably not much you can do, but please don't go to zoos. That's one thing we can all do is is not give our money to these organizations. Yes, and uh, and speaking as a mom of a, a five-year-old child, um, I'll, I'll just put a plug in there for, for other parents who are thinking about, well, what do I do if my kid's school goes to their field trip is going to a zoo or to aquarium. Like, do, do I let my kid go? And the short answer is no, you don't need to. It's your absolute right and choice to talk to, to not have your child attend a zoo or an aquarium. And what I've done in the past is have very open, but respectful conversations with the administration of the schools and, and give them my take. And I have to say the school that my daughter's uh, in currently, I was so pleased to see how receptive they were. And it's, it's not because you know, they used to go to, um, to zoos and it's not because they're like mean people and they want to see animals suffer. They just never thought about it. And sometimes that's all it takes is for parents to approach the administration, the principal or whoever's in charge of these outings, and just talk to them nicely and respectfully about why you think it's wrong and the message, the wrong message that it sends to our children. 
And, you know, sometimes schools will be receptive like they are in, in, in our case. And sometimes, unfortunately, they won't be. But it's worth a try. That's a really good advocacy tip. So many of the, the visits that these facilities receive every year, Marineland, Vancouver Aquarium, various zoos, so many of them are from school programs that just haven't been educated and don't know better yet. And often when a parent or sometimes even a child explains to the administration what the ethical is- issue is, like you said, they'll just uh, they'll just change the field trip. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it just it's amazing how just little you take. Okay, this will be more than five minutes of your day. I'll admit that (laughs) because there'll be the first email, there'll be the phone call, there'll be a meeting. But, you know, even if it takes an hour of your time in total, imagine and just think of the the bigger picture and the benefit this will have, not only for animals, which is what we are ultimately concerned with, but also the benefit it has to children Because we're now teaching children that there are other ways to learn about animals than to go to zoos and to aquaria where we just see them in tanks or in small spaces and essentially in their unnatural settings and and exhibiting unnatural behaviors. So it's really a win-win. It's a win for kids and it's a win for animals. We've already been chatting and people know a little bit about you already, but I'll just give people a bit more detail through your bio. So, Rebecca, you grew up in Montreal and I know you've been a passionate animal advocate from a very young age and were engaged very heavily in activism, even as a a child or teenager. Uh, Mm -hmm. Practice civil litigation for about 10 years at the downtown Vancouver law firm and now uh, run one of the only animal law practices in the country, which I understand keeps you very busy and focusing exclusively on animal cases. And listeners should also know that Rebecca is the founder and current president of the British Columbia Canadian Bar Association Animal Law Section. She has taught animal law at the University of British Columbia Law School and frequently guest lectures in animal law classes and classrooms across the country, is on the board of the Vancouver Humane Society, and is even an advisor to animal justice. So that must keep you busy, huh, all of this? (laughs) Just a little bit, just Just a little little. bit. And and then you throw in a a five-year-old child and... uh, and well, we had four pets up until a couple months ago. Now, now we're down to three. So yeah, it's it's uh, just a little bit busy. <laughs> well, I'd love to know, and I'm sure our guests would love, to, our listeners would love to know, what inspired your love of animals, and how did you find yourself in this career, and and what was your path to getting to where you are today? Well, loaded question. I'll try to answer it. <laughs> try to keep it under half an hour. I know there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, well, I think there's no question that that I've always, and it sounds um, it, it sounds cheesy, although as much as I hate to use the, the word cheese. Sounds but, vegan cheesy. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've, I've always loved animals. I just, there's no other way to say it. I've always had some some affinity towards them. I did not grow up in a vegetarian or a vegan household, so it didn't come from diet. It came more from exposure and and having, I think, uh, pets growing up, companion animals growing up, and just a very strong feeling in me that, that I felt like I, I always needed to protect them. And I grew up in Montreal, uh, and we lived in the suburb of Point Claire, which is uh, which borders Lac Saint Louis, part of the Saint Lawrence River. And every fall, there uh, was duck hunting, and actually, it still is, unfortunately, duck hunting. 
uh, that uh, that started in September, ended in December, and it's just insane. These hunters, so it's for sport, killing ducks for sport, they would, you hear them from from the house you hear them from the entire the entire area because the sound really um bounced the the sounds of the gunshots really bounced off the water and it infuriated me and my family and and we used to kayak and canoe and as of september 21st we were limited because the hunters would go right up to shore and just shoot the ducks from shore wow um, either from shore or on the boats very close to shore and one morning I was walking my dog and um, found a dead duck with a bullet bullet wound in his or her chest. And I took the duck, who was still warm, by the way, oh. um, took the duck to my parents and I wanted the duck <laughs> as evidence, so to speak. I, I was 13 at the time. And to make a long story short, um, I started petitioning Point Claire, the municipality that, that uh, we were living in at the time, and neighboring municipalities to not ban duck hunting because um, we knew I talked to a couple of lawyers at the time, I remember, and my MP at the time, um, and quickly learned that there's no way that the city could ban duck hunting because it, the hunting was happening on, um, on provincial and federal land. But what, um, what I ended up doing was lobbying the municipalities to enforce the current bylaws that they had for stopping, um, for, from prohibiting the discharge of firearms within oh. a thousand meters from shore. And, and that's a way, uh, and we ended up getting, um, we being uh, me and um, my mom and there were, uh, this was a project that lasted a number of years, and um, and I got help from a few volunteers at an environmental club that I started when I was at John Abbott College. So this is a good like five years later. We ended up getting, uh, I think it was seven or eight thousand signatures. Later in, in the years, earlier on, it was a couple of thousand. But uh, the cities did start enforcing that um, that banned for discharge of firearms, which was really important for the ducks because that was the area where um, they fed, where they rested and fed. So if there was no discharge of firearms, at least they could rest there. But I say that because I think that's when really my career in animals started <laughs> was when I was 13 and kind of using my passion I had for protecting animals um, and combining that with uh, with existing laws to see what we could do to protect them. And, uh, and I had my, my eye on law school from, uh, I could safely say, at the age of between 13 and 15, for sure, because I wanted to be either a French teacher or an environmental lawyer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> an env uh, environmental lawyer, mainly because I wanted, the, I didn't know at the time about animal law, because it didn't, quite frankly, exist as a recognized field or, or in Canada. Um, and it was, so I thought, okay, well, if I'm an environmental lawyer, I, um, I could protect nature, which helps animals in turn. But so I wanted to go into law school and I, I wanted to move to Vancouver, I think since I was 16, after seeing some pictures of ocean and mountains and, and move to, um, move to Vancouver to go to UBC law school. And, and my, I have to be honest, like my, 
when I was um, in law school, I went for the purpose of uh, knowing that I wanted to use uh, law to help animals and to be a lawyer to help animals. But uh, I thought that I would work for for an organization like Eco Justice or West Coast Environmental Law, which are two organizations out on the West Coast, uh, environmental law organizations. And um, and then quickly within like uh, by the end of my first year, I realized that that probably is not going to happen because of financial reasons, quite frankly. I was putting myself through school and I was um, accumulating a lot of a lot of debt, which even now, I mean, this is this is in the early 2000s and 2001. So I, I kind of I, I hate to say this when I'm speaking to law students nowadays, because tuition nowadays is like oh. it is beyond crazy. Right. Yeah. Um, but still, I mean, the point is, is that um, even back then it was expensive for me because I was putting I, I was paying for everything myself and taking out a lot of loans and. And I realized, okay, then I'm going to have to take the traditional path, the so-called traditional path. Uh, and I applied to um, to uh, medium and, and large size uh, firms, and that's where I ended up. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start there and, and kind of work on my debt and then do what I really want to do. But it ended up being that um, I, I ended up being at, uh, at Boughton Law for about, 10 years and and I couldn't I always say everything happens for a reason and I I really have just good things to say and and sometimes I always say thing everything happens for a reason and I think the reason here was that if it wasn't for financial reasons I don't think I would have considered going and working into private working in private practice and especially for like a a downtown corporate general full service firm. But I realized that there are so many benefits. And of course, I realized that I've also been lucky that I found a firm that was very supportive of me. When I was first hired, of course, I wasn't like, hi, I'm Rebecca Bretter. I want to do um, animal law. Yeah, you, you save what... that for once you get to know them a little bit and then start subtly bringing in the files and saying, how about this interesting case? Yes, exactly. And um, so I started out doing general litigation, but literally within the first couple of years, I, I, my animal law practice started growing from like almost nothing to about 30% to uh, 50% to 70. And shortly before I left a couple of years ago, it was well over like 95% of, of my practice even back then. And the benefit of all of that was that I had support of a good firm. I learned a lot because you're surrounded by, by other lawyers with different perspectives that really um, help you form your own arguments and a different perspective and approach to cases. And, and some of the lawyers, I mean, there's, there's something to be said about educating lawyers who otherwise wouldn't have thought about these issues and wouldn't really know about these issues um, are now a lot more aware about animal law issues in general. And I think that, that that's kind of like an added bonus. But then came the time about two, actually almost, it'll be three years this coming December, where I really I had to follow my deep down feeling, which is to go out on my own, start my own uh, animal law firm. And there was always for a number of years, if I'm really honest with myself, 
I've been wanting to do exactly what I'm doing, like under my own umbrella for a really, really long time. But there was always an excuse for me, like, it's not a good time. Um, it's financially, I don't know if I could do it. Oh, now I have a kid, not a good time to do it. And yeah. there was just always a reason, right? Yeah, um, the timing is never right. Sometimes you just have to make the jump, have faith that it's going to work out, and, and it will. I actually had a, a similar experience, exactly. and I'm, I'm glad I did it when I did, but it can be scary. Yes, yeah, exactly. Scary, perfect word, because that's exactly how I felt. And and I decided I decided to do the jump, and, and really, it's okay, this is a little bit personal, and, and I've said it before, Um but it's in 2016, my father, with whom I was really, really close, passed away. And in, in some of his final moments, um, he told me, just do it. He knew that I've been wanting to do this. And he said, just do it. He passed away in August. Oh, and in wow. December, uh, yeah. And in December of that year, I, um, I, I started uh, the front because I wanted to make 2016. Uh, I wanted to do something good in 2016. But yeah. I agree. It's scary. Yeah. Well, sometimes all you can do is just have faith that it's going to work out. And being a, a practitioner in a new field is especially scary in some ways, because there aren't a lot of role models. You can't really look at somebody and say, well, that's a really obvious path that they've taken. I think I'll do the same thing. It's the kind of field where it just depends on you charting your own course. And I love your story, Rebecca, because I think a lot of people who are interested in practicing more more, more stuff that's traditionally associated with nonprofits, like advocacy-oriented legal work, I think a lot of them would probably do like you did early on and, and write off working at a, a larger firm. But I actually think for the reasons that you explained and for lots more, that it can be a brilliant choice and can really contribute to the field in a lot of ways and to personal development too. And a lot of the lawyers that have represented us on many cases work in large firms. They have an animal practice that might be small, but it lets them uh, get their feet wet in a, in a cool area. And lots of partners love when these cases in, come in because they're so different. They're often high media exposure, which is great for firms. And it can yes. be a really good model. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and it just... Uh, I, I think you have to find uh, there is something to be said about finding the right fit and and knowing that um, that the firm that you're at will support you and isn't going to use the excuse that it's a conflict of interest, even though there's no conf current conflict of interest. But, you know, some firms just don't want to be associated with animal law now. And you, I guess fair enough. It's still so early on that people don't really know what animal law is but i i am absolutely sure that just given how animal law has taken off in the last few years it's a matter of time before many firms have the 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 actual title animal law as one of the practice areas in their firms. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. There's a few now that are starting and, and pretty soon it's going to be much bigger. So speaking of, of practice areas, your general practice area is animal law. But I wonder if you could give our listeners a bit of an overview of, of what types of cases you typically uh, take on. I, I know a lot of listeners who are students in particular, or maybe younger lawyers, might be starting to think about doing something similar themselves and are curious to know how you can actually get paid as an animal law lawyer because animals have no money. Yeah, <laughs> yes, very good question. Uh, one of the questions I often get is, um, well, can you really make a living just doing animal law? Yeah. 
And and the short answer is yes. I mean, I guess you have to be good at it to make it to be able to make a living at it. But that comes. That definitely comes. And with experience and and exposure and really, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to experience. But uh, w- which you get if you take the chance and the risk of taking on files like this. And I have to say, it's. I think people feel a bit, sh- not shy, but um, risk adverse to taking on an animal law case because it's so unknown. But really, when you think about what animal law is, it's uh, most cases are, it's an intersection of animal related issues with general principles of law, property law, negligence, in some cases property disputes it just things that we see in our in our non-animal law practices but they involve animals so just to give an example um some of my cases include uh, i would say at least half is is acting for private individuals um and when i say that i mean mainly uh companion animal guardians or or owners so let's say if um if someone goes to a veterinarian and they say the veterinarian mistreated their animal, I act for the animal owner. I never act for veterinarians um, in in litigation cases. So it's veterinarian malpractice cases, which again involve issues of negligence and breach of contract issues. There's ownership disputes uh, over animals. So if a couple splits, uh, who gets the dog or cat? Uh, a, a pretty big uh, chunk of my private uh, sector of clients deals with the defense of dogs. I don't like saying defending dangerous dogs because that just sends a very bad image. Like people automatically assume, oh my God, you're defending dogs that want to kill children and want to like eat kids. And no, not at all. Um, oh, and I that's, that's a really good point. I had never thought about it that way because the, you know, the dangerous dog terminology, we, we tend to use that because that's what this, the prosecutors use. And that was, that's what the legislation usually says. But yeah, we shouldn't accept that framing or that narrative. Exactly. And, and I realize that, and even though, I mean, I've been defending quote dangerous dogs for, uh, for over a decade now, and it's only in the last couple of years or maybe even year and a half really that I started to really think about like when I'm talking to media I don't like saying that I'm defending a dangerous dog because I know we know what that means because we're really talking about the way the prosecution talks about it and the way the legislation talks about it right because because the law actually says dangerous dog yeah but to the people in general no and especially to dog owners who are uh, who are caught in these uh, in these situations? They don't think of their dog as dangerous. They think of their dog who got into a kerfuffle, and not to minimize any injuries that may have happened. But in dogs will be dogs sometimes, and there are risks that happen when you go to an off-leash dog park, or risks with having a dog in general. But it doesn't make your dog dangerous in the way that we think, you know, with baring teeth and wanting to kill everything in sight. Yeah. But, um, Anyway, but but that's I mean all, all that to say like, a, a good chunk of my practice dealing with private clients involves the defense of dogs. Um, and if someone wants to, uh, if someone's dog got injured by another dog and they want that dog put down, I don't um, I don't take on those cases. Or if someone was bit by by a dog, I don't take on those. 
uh, I, I don't take on case. I sorry, I should clarify that I don't take the cases on for the person who was bit or the dog who was bit. I take on. I always defend the dog. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're uh, not there uh, seeking to uh, send dogs to their death or defend those uh, alleged to have harmed them. You're you're there for the animals. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I always say is that I take on only those cases where I feel and think that uh, I will help either an individual animal or animals or help advance the state of animal law, which is why I, I don't um, I would never take on a case defending a veterinarian in litigation. And even though it's a veterinarian who um, I don't necessarily think did anything wrong, it just I would be put in a position where I would have to argue that either um, the loss of companionship shouldn't be recognized or um, it just wouldn't advance the interests of animals in the law at all. Yeah. So it's for that reason. But, you know, the other part of my practice is is um, working for advising nonprofit organizations um, and and charities and and anywhere from. Uh, marine life conservation to one of the cases I, I, I'm hoping we could talk about a little bit today is um, uh, is a case involving horses and suing the federal government uh, in the way it transports horses. Yeah, and, very, um, very, very important case. And and why don't we get into a couple of your cases in a little bit more detail? Because there's there's two I think that we should chat about that are ongoing right now and and significant. And uh, the first one involves uh, dog issues. And you spoke a little bit earlier about taking on cases that advance animals and their agenda in some way. And I think this is one of them. So it's a case called, uh, I believe it's the Santix case. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes. Okay. So just um, this is a case where it's now before the Court of Appeal in British Columbia. And that's uh, that's the highest level court in British Columbia, one level below the Supreme Court of Canada. And essentially what happened is the dog owner in this case, Miss Santix, was out with her dog. Her dog was off leash um, and her dog attacked uh, a a woman sitting in, in a park. And apparently um, the injuries were pretty bad. They were pretty serious. Um, there was a bite, a, a hard bite to her leg and hand um, that resulted in deep puncture wounds and swelling and bruising. Um, it, the injuries took, I, I think, about a month to heal. Uh, they left scarring and loss of sensation in some areas. Um, and these are, are facts that um, that the that the court found and, and accepted. And so essentially, just kind of to, to back up, this is what's called uh, uh, a quote dangerous dog case. And this is type of city sees dog um, and then applies to court to have the dog put down. They call them destruction cases. I hate calling them destruction cases um, because. You, you talk to a dog owner whose dog is whose dog's life is at stake and just the, the hearing of the word destruction. It's like, well, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but just to say um, the, we're not talking about property. We're not talking about destroying a piece of furniture. So I'm, I'm just kind of saying that so that for lawyers who are listening and who take on these cases, uh, just a, a little tip to be mindful of when talking to clients to try and minimize the use of the words um, 
destruction order or destruction case because it just doesn't feel very good for the client. But but in any way, sorry, so just go back to the point, which is that in these cases, um, so the, the dog is seized by the city and then the city has to prove basically two things. One is that the dog fits the definition of dangerous. Quite frankly, it is to do that right now because a dog is it meets the definition if the dog has killed or seriously injured a person okay that that is pretty bad right rarely rarely happens very rare very rare the other is that um that the dog has killed or seriously injured a domestic animal if if that domestic animal wasn't on private property and again um, it, it sounds a lot more serious than, than it is, but the word serious, like seriously injured, has not been uh, litigated enough in court. Right now, a scratch, like a little scratch, or an injury that happened in the course of play is enough to fall under this definition of the dog being considered dangerous. And, and if an animal control officer has reasonable belief that the dog will injure another person again, then the dog can be considered dangerous. So in a nutshell, it's very easy for cities to prove that dogs uh, meet the definition of dangerous. And so they usually win on that first part of the test. And then the second part of the test is that um, if even if a dog is considered dangerous, should the dog be released on conditions? And this is where the law gets uh, gets really interesting, if you ask me, because the legislation itself, and this is in British Columbia, is not clear with what a court can do if a dog is considered dangerous. And some some uh, courts have said, well, uh, the law doesn't tell me what I could do. So if a dog is, quote, dangerous, the only thing I could do is order the dog destroyed, euthanized. Um and which is terrible. And, and then there, there are other sets of judges. And, and, I'm, and I'm grateful that in literally knock on wood, every single case that I've had um, that goes to trial like this, judges have agreed with me that just because the law is silent in regard to um, releasing a dog on conditions or making a conditional order doesn't mean that you can't do it. You can and I make arguments about statutory interpretation and, you know, all this boring stuff. But really, it comes down to that judges do have the power to make these conditional orders. So that's kind of like so, doggy bail, basically. In the long, in the long run, like very like, long, um, run. like a yeah, long term supervision yeah. order, more like it, I yeah. guess. Yeah. 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 And so um, so in this going back to the Santix case. Um, so the, her, her dog did injure another person and the, the, she went to trial and the trial judge, the provincial court judge basically said that her dog is dangerous and that he, he being the judge doesn't think that Miss Santix or the dog owner is responsible enough to follow any, uh, orders that a court would potentially impose. So in other words, the, the, the court didn't trust her. Okay. Um, mm. and, and, the, and the court also said, and you know what, you haven't given me any reasonable alternatives, like what to do with this dog. So the court didn't have any evidence about what kind of conditions would be appropriate 
for the release of, of this dog. And so, so she lost, she lost a trial and, and the court did order the, uh, the dog Punky euthanized, but that order was stayed because she, uh, or delayed, I should say. Um, and so she appealed, she appealed to the Supreme Court, which is our mid-level court in British Columbia. And in a nutshell, there's a lot more to say, but in a nutshell, she lost um, at the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court basically said, well, I agree with the trial judge. Um, and what was interesting, I think, in, in the Supreme Court decision um, and that I'm quite disappointed about is that the, the Supreme Court judge said, well, um, you know, Miss Antix, you didn't you didn't give the court a uh, a plan or or kind of any alternative for the release of the dog, and the onus is really on you to prove that Punky should be released back to you. And this question of onus is now uh, is one of the the key issues that's under further appeal. But let me just say that prior to this case. There has never been any precedence about who has the onus or who has to prove whether the dog is safe enough to return to the community. Before, it was just, I mean, I have to say, uh, from my perspective as defense counsel in these cases, um, although I didn't think the onus was on me or, the, or like my client to prove anything, just as a matter of strategy, I have always... Uh, gotten and retained an animal behaviorist. And it's the, I am going to do a little shout out to Dr. Rebecca Ledger, who is a, a brilliant mind in the animal welfare and behavior community. Um, she, uh, she is the one who we use as an expert to assess the dog and to come up with a management and rehabilitation plan for, for these dogs. But um but in any event, um, so the judge said uh, that, that uh, th there wasn't such a thing in this case. And in previous cases, there's no precedent that said that the onus is on the dog owner. But we always have. Now with this case, as it stands, the onus is on the dog owner to prove that the dog is safe enough to be released back to the community. Oh, and, so, and we don't like reverse onuses on accused people in Canadian law. That's uh, contrary to the charter in most cases. But of course, when we're dealing with an animal, the charter doesn't apply in the same way. Uh, yeah, or, or does it, Rebecca? Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I, I, sorry, I shouldn't say no just like that. Um, there may be there may be some room to argue that, but it, it's not... Um, it, it's never been an issue of my focus in my cases because quite frankly time is always of the essence and we always want to have these dogs who are sitting in the pound on death row you know waiting to be released we focus on really the key issues to get the dogs out on on conditions and um so i don't know i don't know that that may be a possibility but i agree with you that this whole question of re reverse onus i i don't like it either i mean in the past although I, as defense, never needed to prove anything, or there was no precedent, I should say. I did anyway. But it was kind of gave us a brownie point because I was able to argue, well, see, we don't have to do this, but look at this brilliant plan that we put together and how safe it is for the community and how, how good it is for the dog's welfare. 
So now the, the way the law stands is we kind of don't have those brownie points anymore because because yeah. we have to do this. Yeah. We have to do this. But really, okay, so now, so she lost at the Supreme Court. Now she's appealing to the Court of Appeal. And, uh, and I know there's just so much to say, but let me just focus on my key concern um, now uh, and, and my involvement in this case. So I, I was not the lawyer for, um, for the dog owner when she went to the Supreme Court and now the Court of Appeal. The way I found out about really that this case is now at the highest level um, in the province is that I got, got a call from the prosecutor, the city prosecutor who's been you know, involved this whole time. He's like, Rebecca? I want to let you know about this case uh, that's now going to the Court of Appeal. And I think you will be uh, very interested because the question of jurisdiction is coming up. And so he knew that I would be really concerned about this. So And so let me just briefly explain really what that means is that the conditional orders that I was just talking about uh, in in my previous cases where and, and others that have who have been successful in releasing dogs on conditions, that's that's because courts have accepted that they actually do have the power or the jurisdiction to release dogs on conditions. But now in this court of appeal case, the city will be raising the question of jurisdiction and specifically arguing that these conditional orders. Um, uh, should not exist. That the court should not court should not be making these conditional orders. Right, which and, could potentially undo a lot of the, the the progress that's been made to save dogs in this way over the years. Exactly, and that's why I was so concerned. And so the thing with this case is that jurisdiction itself, like the power to make these conditional orders, was never an issue that the dog owner Miss Santix raised. In, in either of the at the trial or at the Supreme Court level. And so it's really, I don't think, I'm hoping anyway, that the Court of Appeal now will not want to deal with the issue of jurisdiction, um, that they'll just say, well, it wasn't raised in the lower court, so uh, we don't want to deal with it. Yeah. But in, in the event that it does, and, and the city does want to deal with it, um. I'm acting for uh, three organizations, the BCSPCA, Huggable, and the Regional Animal Protection Society here in British Columbia. And we want to intervene in this case to basically tell the court that uh, if you if court, if you do want to talk about the issue of jurisdiction, we're here to give you our perspective. And essentially our perspective is that uh, jurisdiction does exist and it's important for the court to be able to make these conditional orders because it ensures public safety, it ensures the welfare of the dog, and really it ensures the property rights of the dog owners. As much as we hate seeing animals as property, that's they, unfortunately they still are. Oh, um, interesting. So do you do you already have a date scheduled for your intervention application? Have you Have you applied yet or is it coming up? It's coming up. It's coming up on April 12th, and and we'll see how that goes. And there are two other organizations that are applying to intervene um, as well. There's the License Inspectors and Bylaw Officers Association. Oh. It, it's or LIBOA. That's a bit easier to say, LIBOA. And they're essentially taking the opposite view than my clients on the question of jurisdiction. They're saying that there should be no 
um, that there is no jurisdiction and that there should be no jurisdiction to make these conditional orders. Why would they yeah. get to intervene? That just strikes me as, as strange because their interests should be represented by the state, right? Like they are the state. Yeah, 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 no, I completely agree. Yeah, wow. it's true. I, I, there are quite a few odd things um, in, in this case in general. And the other thing is that um, the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association it uh, is applying to intervene as well. And I have to say, uh, and this is my view as someone who's been doing these cases for over a decade and who's been working with animal behaviorists, I really uh, disagree with the CVMA's position. Basically, what they're saying is that um, if before a judge orders the euthanization of a dog, the best evidence should be before a court. Well, of course, I agree with that. Sure. Who, like, who, who wouldn't? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but what they're saying, essentially, is that that best evidence needs to come from veterinarians. Oh. And that's where I, and that's where I disagree. And I find it very interesting that they want to, um, that they want to intervene, given that in none of my cases have, has a veterinarian ever been used or, uh, or approved, well, yeah, obviously not approved if they haven't been used by their side, as an expert in animal behavior. Veterinarians would be there to provide um, just their their witness statements about their observations when they uh, when they took care of the dog, like for physical treatment. But veterinarians are not the ones who have the expertise to provide an opinion on dog training or the management of a dog or the rehabilitation in regards to the behavior of a dog. Yeah, no, that would be like asking a family physician to give an opinion on something that a psychologist should weigh in on. That strikes me as completely backward. Yes, yeah, and and it's potentially very dangerous. Like, I'll go as far to say that because... um, I could see a court of appeal or judges who are not familiar with these cases and who don't really know the mechanics of how these cases work. On the face of it, the arguments seem very, uh, very appealing because this is uh, an association of which, by the way, it's not the regulatory body. It's an industry based association. So membership in the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association is not mandatory in order to uh, practice uh, to be a veterinarian. It's just like it, it's more of an education based organization. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and and just like a, a networking based organization. But it concerns me because if they do get intervention and if the court does agree with uh, the CVMA's position, that will essentially mean that animal behaviorists and those who are really qualified to uh, to work with the management of the behavior of dogs won't be able to be involved in these cases, which is, in my view, insane. No, that's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you're going to be there in the courtroom, Rebecca, fighting for these dogs and making sure that uh, the cases unfold in a way that's appropriate and maximally pro- protective to their interests. Uh, do you yeah. do you have a date already? Have they set in a date, a date for the appeal itself before the Court of Appeal? 
Yeah, I think it's May 22nd. I have to double check, but I'm pretty sure it's May 22nd. So they're doing this as an expedited appeal. The The court agreed, and I was very pleased to see this. Um, the court agreed to, instead of it taking months and months to get to the actual hearing date, they set it uh, within a pretty a quick timeline. And that's because Funky, the poor dog, has been impounded at the Vancouver Pound for almost two years oh, now. Oh, that's horrible to think about. Wow. Uh, absolutely horrible. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for filling us in on the Santix case. We'll definitely be watching that. And maybe when the decision comes out, we can have you back on to talk about it in further detail. Yes. And happy. Good. Happy to do that. Good. Well, keep us posted. And I want to hear briefly as well about your, your other case, which got a lot of headlines when you first filed it. Uh, when was this now? We're going to talk about a case that you're representing the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition in an application against the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which is in charge of enforcing transportation of animal laws. Yes, yes. So we filed this lawsuit back um, in uh, the the end of August, beginning of September 2018. And, and in a nutshell, um, I act for the Canadian Horse Defense a coalition, like you said, and it's a nonprofit organization that an advocacy group, an animal protection organization that advocates for the uh, the ban of horse slaughter in Canada and for they're hoping to get a ban on the exportation of uh, of horses uh, out of Canada. And right now, I think a lot of people don't realize. Let me just say a few things about just in terms of background. Yeah. Um, I don't think, and I certainly, you know, to be honest, before I got involved in this case, I didn't realize just how much of this is going on. But Canada, for one, um, is one of the very um, few uh, countries that slaughters horses uh, domestically. So we slaughter horses here in Canada uh, for meat. And we also... And this is what I didn't really realize the extent to which we're involved as a country. We export live horses out of Canada to mainly Japan. And we just recently discovered literally in the last couple of weeks that horses are also now being exported to South, uh, to South Korea. Oh, wow. That's new information. Wow. And... And it is just, um, and, and the reason why is because in places like Japan, um, horse meat is considered a delicacy. And they, they kill these horses and serve them essentially, that they serve their meat as sushi. So uh, the same plate as you have fish sushi, they have horse sushi now too. So now we have two different species on, on one's plate. But anyway, that's topic for yeah, another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, um, but in any event, so in, in Canada, just so people can kind of get a sense of how much this happens, um, unlike, I, I think we know that there are about 750 million farmed animals a year in Canada that get killed for, or for meat. Oh, you know what? Um, I, I, I hate to, I hate to say this because it's uh, depressing, but I've just been updating those stats and it looks like we're yes. over 818 million this year. Or 2018. Oh my god! Yeah. Gosh, yeah. Just keeps going up. Uh, anyway, sorry, yeah, to, sorry to be I, a downer. <laughs> no, no, it's yeah. So I mean, it's it, an unbelievably high number, and uh, the number of horses is not nearly um, as high as that. There are about um, thirty-five thousand or so 
horses killed annually in Canada. And there are about 8,000 or so horses exported from Canada. So in the bigger picture, you know, when you compare that to the 800 million plus farmed animals and versus, you know, 8,000 horses, it doesn't sound like a lot. And, and, and it, I guess, number wise, it's not, but it doesn't lessen the significance of how these animals are treated. And in the bigger picture, what our government should be doing and what it's not doing to ensure the proper and humane treatment of animals in this country. And so um, these horses are that are being exported, they are being exported in wooden containers, which to uh, non-horse people who don't, and I, and I certainly didn't know this, these wooden containers are uh, just to give, I mean, I... I, I I want to say they're like 20 by 20 feet. Um, don't quote me on that, but they're not very big. Definitely not very and big. No, and, and they cram three to four horses together. And these are not ponies. They're like full-size adult horses. And the wooden crates don't have any barriers. They don't have any separation or anything for these horses. They're basically just grouped together. And what, what I'd like people to realize is that these wooden crates were never intended for the transportation of horses. They were intended for smaller animals like pigs and sheep and, uh, and in some cases cows. But not like that makes it any better because I hate to think that those animals are being transported and killed too. But just for, vi to, for visual purposes... These are small wooden containers that were not meant to carry these big animals. And yet they're being used to put these horses on a plane uh, on a trip that lasts for at least 14 hours in flight. And, and then they land and who knows how they're treated there because we don't have any information about that. I can't access it. But what the CHDC is trying to do in this case is they're suing the federal government and the CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency specifically, for two reasons. They're saying they're grouping these horses um, contrary to what the law says. And what the law says, it's very clear, actually, it says that horses over 14 hands in height have to be separated. And 14 hands in height, for those who aren't horse people like, uh, like me before, it's basically uh, a large, um, a pony that, or sorry, a horse that's larger than a pony. And, and so like an adult horse. So the law specifically says horses have to be separated, segregated. Yeah, it, it's and so right there in the statute. It's so, it's so shocking that they seem to just be completely ignoring what the law says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's, there's, there's no question about it. And then the other reason is that um, the CHDC says that there isn't enough headroom for these horses because from what we could see in pictures and in and witness statements and in our own freedom of information documents is that the horses' heads are touching the tops of crates, which again is contrary to what the law says. Yeah, and I should I should let people know that if they're interested in seeing some of these images, your your clients have done a great job of collecting images from airports. They have been able to occasionally see to the runways um, how horses are being transported and have some evidence of the condition. So so check out the website to learn more about that, and we'll link to it in the show notes too. Yes, yes, great, great idea and great tip. Um, and so 
what the government is saying is, you know, interestingly, and to be fair, they're they're not saying that uh, they're not segregating them, right? I, I mean, quite frankly, that would kind of be silly right. <laughs> of them to do because it's just so obvious that they are. Um, but what they are saying is that, oh no, no, well, we're not we're not separating them because we're following our internal policy that says that if animals are compatible, um, then they should be able to travel together because it lessens their stress. And they'll be better off, their welfare will be better off if they get to travel together with their buddies. And I don't mean to sound too sarcastic, but, you know, I just, like, given everything that I've learned, it's just, it's preposterous that, um, that those, that those statements are being made because if the CFIA really, truly, genuinely cared about the welfare then the very least that they could do is to put some kind of barriers in between the horses so that they don't injure themselves. It's because right now the way they're being shipped is that the horses have to keep their balance the entire time. And if they don't, which happens, they lose their balance, they fall, they, they, and they trample each other. Yeah. And people can't inspect them during flight. No, there's so no there's way to suffering. oversee and assist them if they do need assistance during the flight, I imagine. And, you know, it's so funny, too, that the CFIA claims that they're doing this in the best interests of the horse and that they're friends, like, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the horses that they ship in the same crates no, don't necessarily know each other in advance of the journey. It's not like they go to places where horses are friends and, and take the friends and ship them to slaughter there. They're just horses that kill buyers have purchased from auctions and they're sending to, to slaughter, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so they're saying, oh, well, we, we, um, we make sure that they're compatible. But really, when you read through, um, when you read through what they filed in court, there's no evidence that there's actual good assessment of their compatibility. They only assess their compatibility when they're loading the horses onto the planes. And so basically, if, if the horses aren't kicking each other or hissing at each other at the time of loading, right, then they seem compatible. But of course, that is far, far from the truth because their, their behavior can certainly change uh, during transport. And especially when you think about how stressed these poor animals are, that the slightest little thing can trigger them to just, and horses kick. Like that's, they kick and they bite. That's how they exhibit um, when they're frustrated or when, um, or, or when they just want to be left alone. And they could easily injure the horses next to them or the horses that are grouped in the same, in the same crate. Yeah. So it's, um, it, you know, and we see this, and I'm sure you see this a, a lot too, Camille, is when the government is saying, oh, but we care about the animals and, and we want our laws and our laws do reflect uh, the the care that we provide to the animals, which is BS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anytime you hear the government say that, it's, it's complete window dressing. The CFIA exists to protect industry profits and does a generally acknowledged to be pretty poor job of enforcing the regulations. And I wanted to ask you about one thing I find particularly interesting about this case. 
you're suing the CFIA for essentially their failure to to enforce, to follow the rules, but to ensure that those rules that you mentioned about height and segregation are enforced. But there's a general problem in animal law that it's very difficult to sue an agency that's not enforcing the law. So they might be aware of a violation, but they don't lay charges, they don't prosecute, they don't do anything. And generally, it's pretty difficult to hold them to account for that. So what Mm -hmm. genius way have you figured out how to do this? Well, <laughs> well, we're, we're going to see if it is genius or not, but um, it's, that, that's a great question. And one of the things that we always that we always really have to think hard about in animal law is that when a client comes to you with with an issue and that they want to resolve it, you have to figure out, OK, well, how can we couch this in legal terms that a court will accept? And um, so this this lawsuit is so we're not suing just to be clear we're not suing the government for money right the CHDC doesn't want any money out of this they just want the horses to be properly treated and at the very least that the government follows the law yeah so we started what's called a judicial we're basically asking court review the uh, the conduct of the government but what's tricky is that usually judicial reviews are, uh, you're asking the court to review a decision, like an actual decision that the government made. But in this case, there isn't actually a decision. So it's not like I could turn to, oh, on August 15th, the CFIA made the decision to blah, blah, blah. What, what we have here is on, what we say is the ongoing unlawful conduct. Uh, because that's what it really is. And so we had to find a way to find cases and some um, analogies that we can use to tell the court, okay, even though there's no decision that we're asking you to review, there is an ongoing unlawful conduct here that, um, that needs court intervention. And basically what we're asking the court to do is it's called mandamus and all all that basically means is that we're asking the court to order that the government follows the law and and we're also asking the court for a couple of declarations basically declaring that uh, the government has unlawfully been transporting the horses contrary to the law right right gotcha yeah well, that's that's super interesting and, and something um, good to be thinking of if you're a lawyer interested in doing a similar case. And it's important for us always to be thinking creatively about ways to get your issue before the court. So, Rebecca, what mm-hmm. um, what has happened so far in the case? I believe you've had this uh, discovery process started or completed with the government. Yes. Yeah, so, so the first step was we filed we filed our documents, um, and the documents is is basically sets out an outline of our argument, and we had to also file affidavits, um, which contain the the evidence that we want to rely on, and then the government had an opportunity to file their defense. But interestingly, unlike in other courts. Uh, at the, and this is at the federal court. I should I should have said this at the beginning. So the federal court of Canada. Um, unlike other levels of court, uh, in this judicial in these judicial reviews, the other side, like the defense, so to speak, they don't have to file a defense. So it's not like they have to file a document with oh. a defense that we could that we could see. They just have to at the beginning file reply affidavits. So to file evidence that they'll rely on. 
Oh, okay. And and so we could get an idea, like a good idea of, of what they're trying to argue, but we don't really know until until essentially much closer to the hearing date when both parties have to file their actual arguments. So so right now we both sides have filed the initial stages of the, the documents and we just finished cross-examinations of the affidavits. Uh, so that's when I had an opportunity to cross-examine one of the head people at the CFIA. And I wish, I so wish that I could talk more about the details of those cross-examinations. But unfortunately, I, I can't because of uh, undertaking, implied undertakings that we can't disclose the details of cross-examinations. But once we are looking into that um, just as a legal issue, and once we're satisfied that there's certain things that we can disclose, we uh, will be more than happy to. But I think suffice it to say that what we learned throughout this cross-examination process is that our concerns over the way the CFIA handles and treats and inter uh, treats animals and interprets the law is concerning. Well, I only wish I, I could have been in the room to watch that cross-examination, and I'm sure you must have had a fun time doing it. Oh, I did. I did. I did. And, and yeah, I know. I wish that you could have been a fly on the wall for sure. Um, and, and so now the next step is uh, we have to file, we have to put together basically our entire case. And that is due um, the end of April, beginning of May, where we're sorting out a date. And, um, and then the government does the same. And then we file for a hearing date. And hopefully that'll be in the fall of this year, 2019. Well, hoping, like fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And this is definitely going to be one that we're keeping our eyes on. And maybe we'll even have some news about it at the Animal Law Conference. So, yes, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, this is great, Rebecca. Thank you so much for filling us in on these two interesting cases and your practice as well. I'm sure a lot of people were really fascinated to hear what the day to day life is like for somebody who practices in this area full time, since there are so few of us. <laughs> Oh, can, can I say one more thing? Please about, do. Um, like, uh, as vegan cheesy as this may be, um, <laughs> is that for, for for a very long time, when I tell people what I, that raised eyebrow look like, what? You do what? Um, is to, for students or for lawyers, whether you're just starting out in practice or you're a seasoned practitioner and you've developed an interest in animal issues and you want to incorporate animal law issues in your practice, I'm a very, very strong believer that it's possible and you make it happen. My only tip is that you have to be realistic and practical. So kind of going back to what I was saying at the beginning, like even though this is what I wanted to do since day one, I wasn't able to um, when I first, first started out for financial reasons, but I found a way to incorporate it. And, and I know that if I can do it, anyone else can. It just, you have to have the, your eye on the ball, be realistic and practical. I think that's some sage wisdom. Very few people in this field <laughs> got to work in it right off the bat. Most people had to work on other things and build their skills and transition into it. So if you're in that same position, uh, don't feel down about that. It's a good position to be in and you're going to make it someday. Yes, absolutely. Great. Okay, well, now we're on to everybody's favorite segment, and I've got to say it in a funny voice because Peter's not here. <laughs> Heroes and <laughs> zeros. 
heroes and zeros. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well done. Well done. I think I got it down. I don't know. Maybe he'll have yeah, some criticism totally for did. it, but I tried. <laughs> Totally. All right. Well, our heroes this episode, this is just a stunning story to me, Rebecca. It's on Monday, April 8th, a group of Australian activists, I shouldn't say a group, but a lot of Australian activists got together and undertook some pretty stunning coordinated actions that has the entire country of Australia right now talking about animal rights. They basically mm-hmm. blocked a major intersection in Melbourne with a message to watch the film Dominion, which is undercover footage of how animals are treated on farms and other modern animal use situations. Uh, Some activists physically chained themselves inside slaughterhouses to shut down the production lines. I think that there were 47 arrests at least. And their ask was to watch Dominion. Uh, They wanted people to watch the film Dominion. They held this action on the one-year anniversary of the release of Dominion. And apparently they had 55,000 views of the film in the 48 hours after the protests. Wow. Yeah. 55,000? Not bad, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. And governments are now threatening, apparently, some sort of legal crackdown on them. And what's just happening right now in Australia is astounding. All the newspapers are writing about this. Everyone's talking about it. The message they're trying to get across is that animal cruelty on the in the form of uh, farming needs to end and that we're eating our way to extinction because animal agriculture is a leading contributor to climate change. So I, Which is true, yeah, obviously. Obviously. And so I just got to say, these folks are heroes to me personally. I I think it's sometimes you need to disrupt the system to get your message across. And that's certainly what they did. And it certainly worked. And yeah, I I completely agree and complete shout out to them because this is how things get in the news. This is how things, um, important issues uh, get attention that they deserve. And sometimes you have to really go outside of your comfort zone to do that. So kudos to them. No one ever made change by asking nicely. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Not that we're saying to do something illegal, of course. Definitely not. But be be, be controversial (laughs) if you need to be. Exactly. Yeah. And our zero this episode is the European Parliament Agriculture Committee. Rebecca, have you read about how they are proposing to forbid plant-based products so plant-based sausages, plant-based burgers from using those Mm -hmm. terms like sausage or hamburger? It's 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 so ridiculous. And I think it is also so clear how they obviously feel threatened and they obviously feel insecure if they're going to go to that limit to prevent the, uh, the usage of certain terms like that. There's no other way to explain it. And I think in the bigger picture, this is great news because it just shows what an impact the plant based movement has had on on the meat and dairy industry. Totally, totally. And, you know, funny enough, what the proponents of, of this proposal are saying is that they're promoting it because they want to reduce consumer confusion and they don't want people to think that they're buying meat sausages when they're buying veggie sausages. But I, I think that's a complete because joke. Because it's so confusing. Oh, yeah, I know. As if people are stupid, like, people can read. Give them some credit. And also, apparently, yes. this, and, and this sort of, like, shows what a lie that is, apparently one of the terms floated for the new name for veggie burgers is veggie discs. So if you want to talk about confusing, like, what would you think if you saw something labeled veggie discs? I'd be like, what is that? Do I eat that? Is that edible? 
Whoa, that's so ridiculous. And and hopefully common sense will prevail, like what recently happened here in Vancouver with Blue Heron, the the vegan cheese shop. Yeah. And they were being they were being I mean I don't all, all dare I say harassed and uh, but the CFIA did come to its senses and it did finally come up with a solution that they could continue using the terms vegan cheese and non-dairy non-dairy or dairy substitute I, I don't have the exact terminology now but still they came to their senses and hopefully the same will happen in Europe yeah well I, I think like you said this is evidence that social change is on its way and the existing economic interests are, are still fighting it about first they mm-hmm. ignore you then they laugh at you then they fight you and then you win and uh, we are being fought right now so I think that's progress absolutely all right rebecca thank you for joining us this was episode 30 of paw and order we look forward to uh being back on the air with you again in a couple of weeks oh i had so much fun thanks so much for having me and thanks everyone for listening We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order. <laughs>